So anyways, as he said, we are moving on. We were on Thy Kingdom Come and Thy Will Be Done for a long time. The funny thing is, though, we're not really moving on. We're just moving on to what does it look like and what does it mean for the kingdom to come and for the Lord's will to be done. So we're now, we're kind of narrowing our perspective a little bit. And I just want to do a, a brief recap of how we got to this place. And not just because we need an introduction and I don't want to jump right in, but because there is a reason that Jesus prayed the prayer the way he did. And there's a reason that he taught us to, to pray beginning with a macro, if you will, beginning with our perspective being placed on the Father before we get down into the nitty gritty of what it actually looks like for the kingdom of God to come. So we started with our Father who art in heaven, where we talked about who God is, who we are in relation to him, and also who we are in relation to one another, and what does it mean for God to be in heaven? I thought God was near us. I thought God was close. We talked about all of these things, painting the picture of God as the transcendent one, the one who has always been and will always be, yet also the imminent one, the one who is close to us, who is near to the brokenhearted, as Pastor Christie read a little while ago. Then we moved a little past that into Hallowed Be Your Name, where really we, we didn't spend a lot of time there, but we reflected on what is the nature of the names of God? Why is it important that we recognize God for all of the things that he says and declares about himself? And we, we, we see that when we recognize that God is not only Savior and Redeemer and the Restorer, the, the things that he does, but also who he is, things like goodness and love and compassion and mercy, when we look at the full spectrum of God, it really put, uh, paints a, a framework for our prayers that we wouldn't have if we just jump right in and say, Lord, I'm so glad to be alive, and here's the list of things that I need. And by the way, this country's falling apart, and by the way, there's lots of hungry people all around the world. God, why am I even praying? The list is too long. But when we paint that picture the way that Jesus taught us to paint it, it provides a heavenly perspective for the petitions that we will then make. So, thank you, Josh, love that man. So a couple of things. This message is going to be a little less um, linear. If you're a note taker or you like lots of bullet points, uh, you'll have to exercise your skill this morning. So I got a couple of things. One, one of the things right off the bat here is, so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, there are a couple of things that we are inviting God to do. And one is we are inviting God to change our perspective. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, Lord, I recognize that I don't see the full picture. I, I wonder how many of our issues in life are because we overvalue and overestimate our opinions and our human understanding on the way things in the world are running. And I am not excluding myself from this, but we are inviting the Lord to change our perspective. Lord, I am praying in this way and I am asking that you will help me to see things differently, to see things the way that you see them. Number two, we are inviting God to adjust our expectations. So one of the things I noticed in preparation for this message is that the only thing requested in the Lord's prayer is daily bread. It's the only thing. There's no prayer for yachts. There's no prayer for 
um, lots of money. There's no prayer for you fill in the blank. And and this is this doesn't mean it's wrong if you are praying for other things. I'm not insinuating that at all. But there is something to that, that the only thing that we ask for is daily bread. That there is so much more to prayer than just getting our needs met. There is so much more that God is doing in and through us individually and as a people when we pray. So we're coming to prayer and we're saying, Lord, adjust my expectations. Adjust my expectations, God. Fix the ways where I am expecting you to work in a certain way that you're just not going to work in because it's a wrong expectation. Lord, I invite you into that. That is also something that we're doing when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And then thirdly, we are inviting God to recalibrate our desires, to recalibrate our desires. There really is no section of the Lord's Prayer for and fill in the blank. The and fill in the blank section is encompassed in your kingdom come and your will be done and all of the things that that entails. Because prayer is more about me getting in alignment with what's in God's heart to do than me getting God to do what I think he should do, right? And let me tell you, that, that preaches really well until you find yourself on the other side of it. And uh, I've been there and at times and I'm still there and that is difficult. It is a struggle to get our hearts in alignment with the hearts of God. How many can attest to that? I know that I can. So we are asking God, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're inviting him to change our perspective, to adjust our expectations, and to recalibrate our desires from whatever our current desires are to, Lord, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on this earth through me and through my brothers and sisters as it is in heaven. At the core of the Lord's Prayer, if we had to sum the whole thing up, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of submission where I give my yes to the things that God wants to do. If we sum it all up and, and just and, and pare it down to its minimalist phrase, we're saying, God, I give you a yes to all the things that are in your heart to do. However I can be involved, use me. That is, in essence, what the Lord's Prayer is about. Bill Hybels has a book called Too Busy Not to Pray, and he's got this quote here that I really love. He says, prayer is an unnatural activity. From birth, we have been learning the rules of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. But prayer flies in the face of such deep-seated values. It is an assault on independent living. To people in the fast lane determined to make it on our own, prayer is an embarrassing interruption. Preach, Brother Bill. I couldn't have said it much better than that. So with that being our introduction, that, that paints our framework for today, I would like us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And, and I want to just make one, one distinction here. It is easy when something is on the screen to recite the Lord's Prayer, but I'm asking you to pray the Lord's Prayer. And the difference isn't whether you're looking at the screen or not, or how emotional you are when you say it but how engaged your heart and your will are when you pray it. So with that said, if we can get the Lord's Prayer up here, let us pray this together as a body, okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day 
our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that in this next few moments that you would reveal to us what you are saying through this prayer Jesus teaches us. I pray that my words would be vessels that carry the weight of truth and those that don't carry truth, let them fall to the ground, not in anyone's heart, but let them fall to the ground, not taking seed and not bearing any fruit. God, I pray for us collectively as a people, most importantly, that we would be open to your spirit. The ways that we think we know and that we are closed-minded, even unintentionally, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open us up and make us more aware of what you are doing in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so give us this day our daily bread. At its core, this phrase is a prayer of dependence. And I love how Pastor Jay just intro with that Matthew chapter six. That was perfect. This is a prayer of dependence. And we're just gonna very briefly break this down word by word. Give implies that we need something. Give also implies that we need something that we cannot cultivate for ourselves. We need something that someone else, that in this, in this instance, God, has that we need. So the word give implies dependence, that we are a needy people. Give us implies that we are together, that we are interdependent, that the things that I do affect the things that Jerob does and that Bonnie does and Nick and Pastor Jade and Pastor Christy, and the list goes on. It's like an immense root system where all the roots are, are singularly tied to individual plants, but they're also interconnected in such a way that something can't happen to one tree without it affecting the others. Give us our daily bread, not give me my daily bread. This day... This reveals that we are daily in need. This is pretty self-explanatory, but there's no prayer for future bread, right? There's no prayer for future bread. There's only today's prayer for daily bread and tomorrow's prayer for tomorrow's bread. No, for daily bread. Every day is a prayer for today's bread. In other words, we are designed to be perpetually needy. Let that be a burden off of some of your shoulders. You are designed in some ways, in some ways, to be perpetually needy and dependent. <clears throat> and then our daily bread. What is our daily bread? So there's, you know, it, there are streams and threads of things all through scripture. Themes like bread, themes like light and darkness and, and um the list goes on of themes that run from the beginning, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Rivers is another theme and, and so on. So every time that we see bread, there are certain things that are implied. One is, it is just bread. It is provision. It is what we need to live. But the greater definition for daily bread, as we will understand it today, is the things that make for life. 
the things that we need to have a sustained life on this earth is what we mean when we say daily bread. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're saying, God, give me everything that I need to be who you're calling me to be today. All of that is included, okay? And I just wanted to get that out there up front. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 16. We're going to start right at the top of that chapter. So we're coming in here right in the middle of a story, a story that probably all of us, even if we didn't grow up in church, we know the story of. So the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and the Lord delivers them through the hand of Moses from the hand of Pharaoh. He delivers them, they cross through the Red Sea, and then they essentially enter a wilderness. And we're picking up in the story very early on in the wilderness. So Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to themselves, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. One of the things we have to remember is that everything the Lord does is purposeful. It always has been, and it always will be. That doesn't mean that we understand it, and it doesn't mean that we can even recognize the purpose. A matter of fact, I think most of the time, we don't recognize the purpose. But trusting in our Lord, who is working so much beneath the surface that we have almost no idea what he's doing, everything he does is purposeful. So why does God deliver them out of Egypt and bring them into a wilderness, and then... He's got a bunch of hungry, millions of hungry people on his hands. Essentially, what the Lord is doing is he's bringing them out of oppression and into dependence, which is very countercultural for our Western minds, where we think the Lord brings us out of oppression and bondage and slavery into independence. This is what America teaches us. And this isn't a knock on our country. I love our country. But we live in a society where independence is one of the highest virtues. So a note here is freedom does not mean independence. Freedom in Christ is an actual recognition of how dependent we really are. The more we understand how dependent we are, the more we can be free because we're not trying to do things we were never designed to do for ourselves. So God brings them out of Egypt and into the wilderness and he is forming a people who are learning to be dependent on him because these people have no context for this God. These people have no context for a God whose kingdom is so abundant that he can literally rain down manna from the sky. These people have no context. So he is having to teach them and to train them what it is to serve this wonderful God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills as we read later in the Psalms. He's training them to be his people. And I have news for all of us this morning. We have not graduated. We are still his people. 
that you and I are still, and hopefully gladly so, right, the people of God who are fully and completely and utterly dependent on him. Thank you. We are designed to be dependent to always need God. This is obvious in our physical man. God created us as humans with continual perpetual needs. In other words, we, it's not good enough that we ate yesterday, right? You could eat the largest meal of your life, and I guarantee you, by dinner time tomorrow, you're going to be hungry again. Why? Because you're designed to be that way. We are designed to breathe perpetually. We're designed to need water to drink perpetually. These are things that we don't graduate from because the Lord does everything on purpose, including our original design. We are a needy people. But being dependent is countercultural. We don't like to be dependent. We want to go out and make a life for ourselves. And in some ways, I'm not preaching against everything in our society, and I'm not preaching against parents raising up kids to be independent. There is an element of that that, of course, is necessary. But in the context of the kingdom, it's countercultural. It works the other way around. It also requires humility. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Essentially, what God is saying here is that I allowed you to be hungry so that only I could meet your need, which then starts the cycle of training. We don't like the cycles of training. I don't like the cycles of training. But how else do we expect to be formed into the people of God that can bring his kingdom into this earth if we're a people that can't even trust God for our daily bread? This also requires trust. God says here in Exodus chapter 16, He says that he's going to rain down manna, and there is plenty. There is plenty. But he says, Moses, tell them to only take enough up to one omer, whatever that is, per person per day. While there's still tons on the ground. This is fascinating to me, that our God is such a God of abundance that he's not even concerned with waste. He actually uses the opportunity for waste as a training opportunity for his people. Because, of course, they go out and God says, only take what you need for one day. So what do some of them do? Some of them take more than what they need for one day and it spoils and it gets infected with maggots. God provided so much, but the point is he wants them to trust day after day after day. And what we want to do is we want to store all of the abundance of God in yesterday's wineskins and say, God, I know that you have more, but just in case you stop providing, I want to have a little bit of extra over here. And I cannot tell you how many times I have done this. This is a very convicting message to preach, by the way. (laughs) As are most messages, just to be honest. Um, Another thing that being dependent does is it causes us to think about those who really do need daily bread today, which for most of us in the room, 
we're not really, really in need of bread for like today, you know? We might be thinking, I don't have enough money or food for bread next week, but there are people that we all know that there are people who are desperately in need of food today. And we don't think about them as our brothers and sisters in Christ as often as we should. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Stanley Harawas, a a pretty famous theologian who taught at Duke forever, has this quote and he says, most of us perish from too much bread rather than too little, filling the gnawing emptiness within through ceaseless consumption. Man, that phrase. For us, we ought to pray for the grace to be able to say in a culture of consumption, give us, Lord, the grace to know when enough is enough or help us to say no when the world entices us with so much. I think for some of us, if we're putting ourselves in their shoes, the struggle is not quite as much about wondering, is there going to be more bread to tomorrow, but the struggle is probably more that we want to gather all the bread that we see and we want to take it back and store it in our tent. We, have, we suffer from this ceaseless consumption. I suffer from ceaseless consumption and we have to be recalibrated in our minds and the way that we live and the way that we think and the way that we think about people all around the world, the way that we think about homeless people downtown. Give us this daily bread. We are putting ourselves in shoes of people who don't have what we have on purpose. We're doing that on purpose because Jesus tells us to do that. So moving along here, let's... uh, Let's, I'm going to skip a couple of things. Let's turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. We're just going to fast forward in the same story, and we're going to really get to the meat of this thing. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6 is what we're going to read here. Numbers 11, 4 through 6. And it says, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Okay, this is hilarious. This is really funny, like on a a very real level. Because God just delivered these people from 400 years of slavery and they remember the abundance of leeks and garlic. I mean, seriously, put, put yourself in their shoes. Like, this is what I call the good old days syndrome, where we always remember things historically, particularly seasons, and you hear it a lot in church, well, the good old days, the 80s or the 60s or the 50s or whatever, and we, we over-remember the positive things and we under-remember the costs and the negative things that happened, and sometimes not even with ourselves. You know, I'm just going to give one example because I'm feeling daring right now. I, I was having a conversation with um, an older gentleman, not, not at this church, so you're all off the hook. Uh, a couple of years ago, and, and this phrase came up, oh, the good old days. And I said, like, when are the good old days? Well, the 1960s. 
And in my mind, you know, these are the days before cussing on television and before lingerie billboards and, you know, before like smoking and drinking and all these things were near as big as they are now. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, the good old days, except for those who were living in segregation and f- except for those who had to drink out of separate water fountains and sit at the back of the bus, yeah, the good old days are never really what we remember them to be. And it's important that we grasp this concept because we all have temptations to want to look back on the good old days with rose-colored lenses, right? This is essentially what they're doing. They're saying, Lord, we wish that we had never come out of Egypt because when we were in Egypt, there was an abundance of meat and fish and leeks and onions and garlic. I had never even had leeks until a couple of months ago. (laughs) Miss Lorraine made us some leeks. I I wouldn't have even known what that was. But you get the point. This is pretty funny. So let's move on here. Numbers chapter 11, skipping to verse 18 through 20. So God says to Moses, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. Oh, we're getting what we asked for. Not so fast. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. Sounds like my dad. (laughs) You want meat? You go get some meat, boy. You better eat it. That actually sounded more like Pastor Jay than my dad. (laughs) Hey, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm catching the culture, you know. It's coming out of me. Even after I've been home with my dad for a week. So the Lord said, uh, now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. So you will eat it not just for one day or two or five or 10 or even 20, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So this is pretty funny. And, and in the Old Testament, it seems that the Lord kind of does this time and time again, not because he's vindictive and angry, but because he's forming a people who don't understand. Let's not be too quick to judge, even though I joke about it, because we have 6,000 years of scripture and history to read from that they did not have. So let's be careful to jump to too many quick conclusions here. But the point of this passage is not about meat, And I'm sure we all gathered that. It's not that meat is bad. It's that meat is an acquired taste that they acquired in Egypt. See, it's not that desiring meat is bad, and you fill in the blank for your own life. Meat is not something bad for you necessarily. But having desires that were formed and are attached to the ways of Egypt is what is important that we take away from this passage. See, one of the things that they somehow liked about Egypt was, of course, not the working and the whipping and all of that. But by now, they've already forgot about that. Shoot, they're they're a year or two removed. They forgot about 400 years of slavery. But what they did remember was the security they had of food always being on the table. So get this, they were willing and they said, we should have never left Egypt because because we had all the food we could eat in Egypt. So let me get this straight. You're saying that you would rather be tied to security 
even if it's under bondage and slavery, then be free, but have to wholly trust and rely on the Lord. This is essentially what this whole passage is about. It's about these people learning to break the curse of the desire for human security at all costs within themselves. The Lord is working that out. And by giving them manna, something that meant, what is it? They didn't even know what it was. By giving them manna, he's bringing these desires to the surface so that he can work them out of his people. Because as long as their desires are tied to the ways of Egypt, you fill in the blank for your life, fill in America or prosperity or success or whatever, fill in the blank, security. As long as our desires are tied to those things, we can never fully bring the kingdom of God and the will of God into our sphere of influence. This is important. This is incredibly important because we are designed to be dependent on God. We never graduate from that. The purification process of becoming his people is a death. They said they feel like they're dying. And here's what's interesting. They weren't dying, but something was dying. Something was dying. And what was dying very slowly over time is their desire for the things of Egypt as they learn to trust God day after day after day after day, they learned, okay, maybe he's not gonna just get angry and pull his hand back. Maybe this God really is trustworthy. And of course, throughout scripture, we see the whole story there. So I'd like us to fast forward to the book of John chapter six here. When we pray for our daily bread, we are essentially saying, God, give us the things that make for the life you have for us. Sustain us with the things that you know we need to become the people that you're calling us to be. And a quick disclaimer here before we jump into John chapter six, what this does not mean is that everything that comes to you and happens to you is God's daily bread for you. That is not what we mean, which is why we pray for it. If it was gonna happen anyways and everything around us is always the daily bread God's providing, then why pray for it? We need to pray not just for the daily bread, but for the discernment to know if that is daily bread for me or if that is Egypt's bread for me. And for some of us, the item might be the same thing, but it might be from God for me and from Egypt for you. So it's not as cut and dry and as simple as just these things are bad. No, that's moralism. That's too simple. That's too simple. There are things that each and every one of us need to survive that would be bad for somebody else and vice versa. So let's jump here to John chapter 6. Sorry, I'm flying through this. John chapter 6, verse 25 through 27 is where we're going to pick up. So I'm going to paint the picture before we read here. So John chapter 6, the very beginning, is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? So we know that there is this crowd, and they're listening to Jesus teach, and Jesus calls Philip over and says, hey, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And it says in the text, and I love this, it says, he asked Philip to test him. He already knew what he was going to do. 
Then, so there, there's the feeding of the 5,000, then there's 12 baskets over, overflow, which is a whole other sermon for another time, talking about the abundance of God's provision for the whole world, not just the people of Israel. But like I said, that's another message for another time. Then what happens is Jesus retreats because it says in here that Jesus knew that they intended to make him king by force, so he retreated to the mountainside. Because when people get a, when people in the New Testament got a revelation of what Jesus came to be and to do, they almost always misinterpreted it. So Jesus withdrew. He pulls into the, into the mountainside. Then there is the story about Jesus walking on the water. And then we come to this passage, okay? So th- that is the backstory of how we get here to verse 25, John 6, 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not Did not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So the irony here is that they just saw Jesus multiply loaves and fishes and walk on water. And then, jump here with me to verse 30. I apologize, I cut it off too soon. Verse 30, so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so so they say, what sign will you give us? Because our forefathers had manna in the wilderness. Okay, so we just did that little recap, right? Jesus just multiplied five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 men with 12 baskets over, and they need another sign. As if that wasn't enough, Jesus walks on water literally the day before, and they still need another sign. The irony of this whole thing is the example that the disciples use and they say, well, our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness. And Jesus is like, I literally could not have done anything closer than dropping manna from heaven, than taking five loaves and two fish and multiplying it. Like he just did essentially the same thing, but they didn't have eyes to see it. They still needed a sign. Jesus is like, you're not following me because of a sign. You're following me because you were hungry and I fed you. You missed it all together. How many times has Jesus provided for us and we miss it because we're looking for such a specific thing? And listen, this is not to employ guilt and condemnation in any way, shape, or form because it has happened to every one of us where we have been looking for something from the hand of the Lord and we're looking for him to do it straight from heaven, but maybe he's trying to give it to us through a brother or through a pastor or through a coworker or whatever, but because it looks a little bit different, we don't even recognize it. Jesus is essentially trying to tell them, look, in the same way that my father was faithful to provide manna in the wilderness, and in the same way I just multiplied bread and fishes, he has provided me now to be the life that sustains the whole world. So here's Jesus revealing himself to these people, 
Jesus announces himself as the bread of life. Jesus is the manna in the wilderness that they're talking about. Jesus is the gift of God given to men for sustenance in the wilderness. Here, one of the ironic things is, so Israel was in bondage. So going back to the Old Testament passage, they were in bondage for what they believed to be about 430 years by the time that manna comes because they had just been out of the wilderness or they had just been out of Egypt for about two months at this point, right? So when Jesus comes on the scene, as we talked about in our Christmas series, there was 400 years of silence. And then most scholars believe that Jesus' ministry started at about 30 years old. Isn't it ironic that about 430 years both times, God comes and provides out of the abundance of heaven onto the earth, screaming and yelling at his people, if you will just be dependent on me, I will give you everything you need to sustain the life I'm calling you to live. And in the Old Testament, Jesus says here shortly, he says in the old, in, in when your forefathers ate the manna, they still died, but if you will eat the life that I am giving to you, you will never die. So let's actually, let's, let's read this real quick. Let's read it real quick. John, uh, let's read verse 30 through 35. We just read 31 and 32. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that, that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written, you gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, I find that funny. Um, From now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Sarah and the worship team, if you guys will come. And uh, those who are attending to communion, if you would go ahead and prepare here in just a moment. We're going to take corporate communion. But just before we do, I want to make a couple of points about what Jesus has just said here. One is Jesus has just self-described as being the manna in the wilderness. But more than just being the manna in the wilderness manna in the wilderness, that when you eat it, you will never die. This is the greatest news we could ever hear. This is the news that they had been waiting for for thousands of years, and they almost missed it, but they didn't. Jesus is also the radical provision of God. There is an abundance in the kingdom of heaven that we just can't fathom. There is no lack of anything in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. And I think when we really wrap our minds around that, and that's just not applying to physical things like money and provision and you know resources for buildings and for doing the work, but there is an abundance for the fullness of life that God has called each and every one of us to. And that doesn't mean that it's not a process of eating and eating and eating daily bread over time, but that abundance exists and we see that in Jesus. Jesus also reveals the creative generosity of God. So get this, unlike when they were in Egypt, they had to work for their food in Egypt. 
But God says, I am going to give you and rain down manna from heaven. There is this understanding that they had, which is one of the reasons they wanted to go back to Egypt. Because I know that as long as I'm in Egypt and I'm doing my job, there will be plenty for me at the table. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not about you doing your job. It's about you being dependent on me and me being trustworthy and faithful when you don't even literally know how to be faithful. Faithful. When we come to the table of the Lord, which we're going to do here in just a minute, we're not earning anything. We're not earning anything. We're celebrating the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is both the giver and the gift, and he announces himself as that. And when we come and partake at the table, and when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, yes, we are asking for physical provision. And we're also acknowledging our dependence and laying ourselves down on the altar again. But we are also saying, God, fill me again with the life of Jesus that I need to make it through today. Fill me again with the life of Jesus that I need to make it through today. And it may feel like nothing happens. And it may feel like you've got literally just enough and you're not gonna make it tomorrow. But the good news is we get to ask again tomorrow. We get to ask again tomorrow. Communion, we believe, is a sacrament of the church, meaning that it is something that Jesus instituted as a physical manifestation of grace. In essence, it is a way for us to have something tangible to latch onto, to receive the grace of Jesus into our lives. So in just a moment, when we take communion, you may not feel anything. And let me tell you, there is no magic, and I don't want to get into how we believe the things that happen at communion. That really doesn't matter. What we do believe is that Jesus told us that there is real life in his body and that there is real life in his blood. And we somehow trust in the same way that God the Father rained down manna from heaven, we trust that by taking of these elements that seem like nothing, that he is sprouting life deep within our spirits. And he is giving us all that we need to sustain. So uh, communion uh, attendants, if you guys would come here to the front, um, I'm gonna invite you in just a moment to come forward. your body and your blood we thank you that somehow some way in your supernatural way you're doing something in us that you're sustaining us that you're providing for us that you're forming and shaping and making a kingdom people out of us by this simple sacrament that we do as a body and God, we ask this week, this day, that you would help us open our eyes to what it is to receive daily bread. Give us discernment, Lord, to see the daily bread in front of us and to push away the bread that would be coming from Egypt or from another source, Lord. We want what you are giving to us to sustain us. Help us as we try to live as a kingdom people. In Jesus' name. Amen.